Hello and welcome to the newest episode of the Minority of One podcast. This is the second part of my trilogy on the history of racial profiling. Now, today we are going to sort of start by talking about how the New Jersey State Police racial profiling scandal sort of brought the term into public consciousness and got the issue a lot more attention. And we're going to sort of go from there, and we're going to finish out with the end of the Bush administration. And sort of, and then in the final episode, we'll sort of pick up with the beginning of the Obama era, and then sort of uh, take it to present day. So, I do want to clarify here, you know, we talked about how the drug war created a a lot of sort of new opportunities for cops who held racist views to racially profile. Now, obviously, racial profiling had already been rampant for centuries, but the drug war, I think, made the problem more difficult to address. Now, I do want to be clear here that many of the members of Congress, such as uh, Charles Rangel, Hamilton Fish III, and Joe Biden, who backed the war on drugs, never supported racial profiling. And I don't think that members of Congress, such as Rangel, Fish, and Biden, I don't believe that they had, I don't think that they had any racist motives for supporting the drug war. But while many of the members of Congress who favored the drug war never supported racial profiling, the drug enforcement agency outright encouraged it, and they essentially put this in writing. So New Jersey's governor from 1982 to 1990 was a man named Thomas Kane, and he was an old-school Rockefeller Republican who had been involved in the civil rights movement and, by all evidence, was and still is a genuine supporter of racial equality, but he urged the New Jersey State Police to aggressively target drug traffickers. Now, it's very unlikely, very unlikely, that he intended for them to do this by racially profiling. But despite the fact that he probably did not intend for them to racially profile, racial profiling ended up being the method that many, though not all, state troopers used. This, by the way, is an example of what many of us mean when we say systemic racism. Because of the history of racial oppression in this country, even policies that are are enacted, at least partly for non-racist reasons, often create racist outcomes. I say at least partly because while many of the politicians who backed the drug war weren't interested in promoting racism, Others, such as Strom Thurmond, Robert Byrd, and perhaps Reagan also, probably were. And in 1994, New Jersey elected Christine Todd Whitman as governor. Now, Whitman was moderate on some issues and actually voted for Biden in 2020. But whereas Keene had been anti-racist but pro-drug war, Whitman was just racist and pro-drug war. Now, racial profiling was already exa- was also exacerbated by the drug war's lesser-known sibling, civil asset forfeiture. Civil asset forfeiture had also significant bipartisan support at the time and is also an officially race-neutral policy. 
Now, it essentially allows for law enforcement to seize and sell a suspect's property, even if the suspect was never convicted of anything in criminal court. Now, in a 2001 article for the Libertarian Reason magazine, Gene Callahan and William Anderson discussed how the drug war was, as well as asset forfeiture, worked in tandem to incentivize bigoted cops to racially profile people. While I think that some of their arguments and proposed solutions were oversimplified, the article is worth quoting at length. Quote, The U.S. Department of Justice reports, quote-unquote, collectively local police departments received $490 million worth of cash, goods, and property from drug asset forfeiture programs during fiscal year 1997. Sheriff's departments had total receipts of $158 million. This kind of money adds a major incentive to police efforts to discover drug crimes. The study by Mast, Benson, and Rasmussen concludes the results for the impact of asset forfeiture laws are robust. Police, fo- police focus relatively more effort on drug control when they can enhance their budgets by retaining seized assets. Legislation permitting police to keep a portion of seized assets raises drug arrests as a portion of total arrests by about 20% and drug arrest rates by about 18%. Of course, if the police began harassing all motorists in a particular locale, support for their activities would soon evaporate. However, if they can identify a minority group that is somewhat more likely to commit a particular drug crime, and if they know that members of that group are not politically powerful, then the police can focus on those people in order to enhance their departmental revenue. The usual supposition that the accused is innocent until proven guilty has been explicitly reversed in asset forfeiture cases. The authorities are not required to prove that a crime involving the goods in question has been committed. Instead, they must merely have probable cause for the seizure. The burden of proof is on the defendant trying to recover his property. The Schaefer Library of Drug Policy has found that 80% of those who have had assets seized are never charged with a crime, let alone convicted of one. Federal law provides for up to five years in prison for attempting to prevent one's own property from being grabbed, end quote. Uh, now, now that, so I'm all of that, that's a very long quote, but that's all, all what I read from the uh, Reason Magazine article. And as I've said, while I do think that there are aspects of the article, you know, their analysis, their proposed solutions that I do think are oversimplified, I did feel that there were enough good points in that quote to read you the full thing. So in 1996, a court ruling by a superior judge in Gloucester County, New Jersey, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, was the shot heard around the world for the racial profiling war. In the State v. Soto case, Judge Robert E. Francis, himself a former prosecutor, ruled that state troopers had engaged in racial profiling of black and Latino drivers and that this seriously tainted the evidence in a number of drug arrests. Victims and opponents of racial profiling found an ally in a white ex-cop named James Fife. A Brooklyn native, Fife had become an NYPD beat cop in 1963 and spent 16 years on the force, earning the rank of lieutenant. 
After leaving the NYPD, he had earned a PhD in criminal justice, began teaching at Temple University, writing and testifying extensively on police misconduct, and at various points training NYPD cops. He served as an expert witness in about 40 lawsuits against the Philadelphia Police Department alone, not counting the other lawsuits directed at other police departments that he served as as an expert witness for. Fife accused the New Jersey State Police of encouraging racial profiling in their training and then lying to claim that they had not kept a record of the incriminating training videos. He also argued that state troopers had used underhanded tactics, quote, to wheedle consent out of traffic stops in cases where there was not adequate legal cause to search non-white drivers' vehicles without consent. From there, the walls began to fall. The use of the term racial profiling rapidly entered widespread public use. Other controversial incidents involving allegations of police racially profiling took place, though the New Jersey controversy overshadowed them. In 1997, Miami-Dade police major Aaron Campbell was pulled over by Orange County, Florida deputy sheriffs. In a videotaped confrontation, Campbell angrily argued that he was being racially profiled, refused to cooperate, and was pepper sprayed and handcuffed after grabbing his driver's license from a deputy and trying to run. While the sheriff's department denied racially profiling Campbell, Judge Thomas Myhock of the Orange County Circuit Court ruled that Campbell had, in fact, been the victim of racial profiling. However, Myhock did not throw the case out entirely, like Judge Francis in New Jersey had with 17 drug arrests. Instead, he dismissed some of the, of the counts against Campbell, but allowed the jury to convict him on certain other counts. Campbell received probation, but was later elected city councilman in a town called Miami Gardens. Army Sergeant Rosano V. Gerald alleged that in 1998, he was stopped twice in under an hour when driving near the Arkansas-Alabama border, first by police in a tiny Oklahoma town called Roland, then by the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. Gerald's allegations were used as the intro for an ACLU special report by law professor David Harris, and the Army officer would testify about his experiences to Congress in 2000. Democrats in the New Jersey legislature quickly began arguing that racial profiling was a scourge in their state. Black troopers began suing, claiming that, among other things, they were being pressured by higher-ups to racially profile. In 1998, two white state troopers were accused of racially profiling and unnecessarily shooting and injuring four black and Latino passengers, as well as falsifying logs in order activity logs in order to understate how many non-white drivers they were stopping. Attorneys Peter Neufeld, Johnny Cochran, and Barry Sheck, along with several less well-known New Jersey lawyers, represented the drivers. Thomas Kane declared in an interview that using race to any degree in deciding who to, who to profile was unacceptable. The Clinton DOJ announced that an outside monitor would be brought in to supervise the New Jersey State Police and ensure that racial profiling didn't continue. Al Sharpton led a protest 
which shut down the Atlantic City Expressway. Bill Clinton became probably the first president to use the words racial profiling in a public statement, condemning the practice and demanding that it end. The U.S. House of Representatives passed a law requiring that data be collected on traffic stops to determine how pervasive racial profiling was. Frank Lautenberg, New Jersey's senior senator, co-sponsored the bill in the Senate. In 1999 and 2000, North Carolina, Connecticut, and Massachusetts passed legislation to deal with racial profiling. The North Carolina law mainly focused on gathering statistics rather than outlawing and punishing racial profiling where it occurred. The Connecticut law banned racial profiling, but defined it narrowly, suggesting that it was only illegal when race was the sole reason a person was targeted. The Massachusetts law was vaguely worded in certain ways, but probably had the most concrete prohibition on racial profiling of these three laws. Because, let's face it, Massachusetts is generally the least bad state on civil rights. As I often say, it is the most racist state in the country, except for the other 49. Now, Governor Whitman attempted to cover her ass in the ensuing fallout with limited success. Racism is rampant in all parts of the country, but at the end of the day, New Jersey is a very liberal state. Even in the 90s, the number of non-white voters and white liberal voters almost certainly outnumbered bigoted white voters, meaning that coming across as supporting racist policing could jeopardize a person's political future in the state. Indeed, New Jersey became the center of controversy over racial profiling, in part because it was one of the first states where a judge from said state was willing to rule against it so decisively. In more conservative states, a similar ruling would have been less likely. Whitman condemned the behavior of certain troopers and fired police superintendent Carl Williams for making a comment that was seen as endorsing racial profiling. But as Jeffrey Goldberg exposed in a 1999 New York Times article, Whitman's supposed stance against racial profiling was more style than substance. As Goldberg ex- explained, quote, Whitman, though burned by, the behavior, burned by the behavior of her state troopers, is offering them a generous dispensation given, given her definition of racial profiling. Quote, Profiling means a police officer using cumulative knowledge and training to identify certain indicators of possible criminal activity, she told me. Race may be one of those factors, but it cannot stand alone. Writing that her definition was narrow, even myopic, Goldberg pressed her on why she had fired Williams, given her support of racial profiling in everything but name. Whitman emphasized Williams's quote, lack of sensitivity. The article, which is one of the most intricate exposés of the rationales for racial profiling from that era, also revealed how many police chiefs were using the same kind of hide-the-ball tactics as Whitman was using to excuse racist practices in their department. LAPD chief Bernard Parks openly declared that, quote, in my mind, it is not a great revelation that if officers are looking for criminal activity, they're going to look at the kind of people who are listed on crime reports, end quote, and specifically cited the example of treating Colombian Americans as more likely to be jewel thieves. But he defended the practice by saying, quote, we're not just using race, it's got to be race plus other indicators, end quote. 
Goldberg quoted Randall Kennedy as saying, quote, police chiefs use that word solely all the time and it's such a red herring, end quote. One specific organization that came off very badly in the article was the Fraternal Order of Police, almost sounding smug about it. Gary McLinney, president of the Baltimore Fraternal Order of Police chapter, admitted, quote, Of course we do racial profiling at the train station. If 20 people get off the train and 19 are white guys in suits and one is a black female, guess who gets followed? End quote. In 2000, just when it seemed that Whitman might be slippery enough to weasel her way out of the controversy, a four-year-old photo came back to bite her. In 1996, Whitman had been photographed frisking a black teen named Sharon Rolex. While Rolex was eventually found guilty of dealing drugs, the frisk did not turn up anything, and police were forced to let him go. In 2022, I doubt even a governor like Brian Kemp would think it was good PR to get photographed gleefully frisking a black guy. The fact that Whitman ever thought a photo op like this would benefit her politically in New Jersey of all places showcases how different politics were in 1996 compared to how they are today. Democrats, of course, raked her over the coals when the photo resurfaced. But even Thomas Kane, who is generally an admirer and political ally of Whitman, defended Whitman's character and intentions while calling her decision, quote, foolish, end quote, and, quote, a setback to credibility, end quote, of her administration. This perhaps reflected the two governors' differing views about race and policing. The controversy over racial profiling by state and local police coincided with controversy over racial profiling in two other areas, taxi service and U.S. Customs. In New York City, Mayor Rudy Giuliani was being accused of and investigated for allowing racial profiling in the NYPD, specifically being the target of an investigation by the DOJ's Southern District of New York, the State Attorney Gen and the State Attorney General's office. He was also accused of allowing racial profiling by then police lieutenant, now Mayor Eric Adams. Adams has taken some frankly indefensible stances on issues such as interracial marriage, stop and frisk, and facial recognition technology. Adams' stances in those areas really cannot be excused or defended in any way, but he has also been a dogged critic of racial profiling and co-founded 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement Who Care, a group focused on fighting police misconduct. At the time, Giuliani denied supporting racial profiling, an assertion that was at least plausible at the time, but has become increasingly refuted by his own statements since leaving office. Messages to what the media is your enemy. The blacks are your enemy. They are. The but similarly to Whitman's situation, a candidate who only appeals to white supremacists is going to have a hard time winning elections citywide or statewide in New York. And Giuliani was gearing up for a run against Hillary Clinton in New York's 2000 Senate race. Realistically, there was no way for him to get the majority of the black vote statewide in an election against Hillary Clinton. 
but winning 10% versus 20% of the black vote could easily make the difference between him winning or losing the Senate race. Giuliani saw an opening when actor Danny Glover accused the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission of discrimination. According to Glover's account, he attempted to hail a cab on 2nd Avenue in the East Village along with his daughter and one of her friends. The driver at first refused to unlock his doors and only did so after Glover's daughter argued with him. Under industry rules, cabbies were required to let passengers sit in the front if they had physical needs. Since Glover is over six feet tall and has a bad hip, he asked to sit in the front and claimed that when he asked to sit there, the driver threatened to call the police. He also claimed that this was the sixth time just that day that a taxi driver had refused or tried to refuse him service. The allegations were covered not only by the liberal New York Times, but also the right-wing tabloid New York Post. Glover sued the Taxi and Limousine Commission for discrimination, and the group was subjected to a class action lawsuit organized by Al Sharpton and then state Senator David Patterson. While the Post's article describes the program as already having been in place for a year, the Glover incident was widely credited, credited as helping jumpstart or at least draw more attention to an initiative Giuliani was promoting called Operation Refusal. The operation involved black NYPD cops going undercover, trying to hail cabs, and then suspending the licenses of drivers who bypassed them and were found guilty of discrimination. This initiative does not gel with the reputation that Giuliani has earned for himself vigorously in the past decade, but it showcases why he was once viewed by many as a reasonable moderate Republican. Meanwhile, U.S. Customs was facing its own racial reckoning. In 1998, a Colombian-American teacher named Amanda Beritica was returning to New York from Hong Kong. A San Francisco customs official noted her ethnic background and suspected she might be trafficking drugs. Beritica was searched, x-rayed, and given laxatives before being detained for 22 hours. By 1999, Congress was holding hearings on the broader issue of profiling at customs. In 2000, a black advertising executive named Yvette Bradley filed a lawsuit against customs. Represented in court by the ACLU, Bradley alleged that she had been subjected to a search so invasive that it essentially amounted to a sexual assault. Customs officials denied these allegations, but one of the ACLU's attorneys, Lenora Lapidus, said that Bradley had been a victim of, quote, flying while black. Congressman John Lewis teamed with a centrist Republican congressman from New York named Amo Houghton to introduce legislation that would ban customs from racially profiling, as well as requiring data collection on the race, national origin, and gender of everyone searched, and would increase anti-bias training for customs agents. In late 1998, Ray Kelly, who'd been NYPD commissioner under New York's first black mayor, David Dinkins, was brought in to take control of customs. In his second stint as NYPD com commissioner, under known bigot Mike Bloomberg, Kelly would be accused of promoting racial profiling through his support of Stop and Frisk, a Giuliani-era policy 
that was officially race neutral but disproportionately affected black and Latino New Yorkers. Sussing out what Kelly's actual private views are on racial profiling is extremely murky and would probably require an entire episode just devoted to that. On the other hand, sorry, on the one hand, as will be shown here, he has condemned the practice repeatedly and took a number of actions that would seem to be very much at odds with the goal of maintaining racial profiling. On the other hand, the stop and frisk policy indisputably led to large numbers of innocent non-white people being searched and represented a golden opportunity for racist rank-and-file cops and racists who were very high up the NYPD chain of command. In short, Kelly is a very mercurial figure. To quote Aaron Burr from the Hamilton musical, I wish I could tell you what was happening in his brain. But whether Ray Kelly is the William Lloyd Garrison of American policing or a Brooklyn Bull Connor, he took steps as commissioner of, Co of U.S. Customs Service that were seen as cracking down on racial profiling. While defending the practice of paying special attention to flights coming in from countries like Jamaica, which were seen as major sources of drugs, Kelly condemned treating some passengers with more suspicion than others coming in from the same flight due partly or completely to race. In other words, under Kelly's new stated policy, a black traveler coming in from Jamaica would not be treated more suspiciously than a white traveler coming in on a flight also from Jamaica. Kelly also imposed a general ban on customs officials using race or ethnicity as a factor at all in who to search, detain, etc. Feeling that individual agents and supervisors had too much discretion and that this was leading to more racial profiling, he began transferring large numbers of racist supervisors. Now, all personal searches and pat-downs had to be approved by a supervisor. If an x-ray or another kind of more invasive search was deemed warranted, the highest-ranking port supervisor had to authorize that the traveler in question be transferred to a hospital after conferring with a staff attorney, and each detainee's ethnicity had to be recorded on a computer. While allegations of racial profiling persisted, Yvette Bradley's case just being one example, the total number of complaints dropped significantly. Representative Danny Davis, co-chair of the Congressional Black Caucus's Task Force on Police Misconduct, praised Kelly's leadership. 2000 marked the first presidential election in which racial profiling was a major issue. With the Democratic Party feeling that it was Vice President Al Gore's quote-unquote turn to be nominated, only one other candidate ran in the Democratic primary, and he received only a few endorsements. This sole challenger to Gore was New Jersey Senator Bill Bradley. Bradley and Gore vied over who would be more effective at fighting racial profiling. Gore accused Bradley of having been unhelpful when black leaders in New Jersey had tried to address the issue with him earlier. Bradley responded to Gore's promise to issue an executive order against racial profiling in federal police agencies by asking why Gore couldn't just walk down the hall and ask Clinton to issue the order already. In the GOP primary, racial profiling was also discussed. Texas Governor George W. Bush 
played close to the edge on racial issues generally. He initially refused to take a stance on South Carolina flying the Confederate flag on state property and had to apologize after speaking at Bob Jones University despite the school banning interracial dating. But on racial profiling, Bush sounded almost like a Democrat, unequivocally condemning it as racist and unjust. Interestingly, his top primary rival, John McCain, actually took a somewhat different stance. McCain implied that he opposed racial profiling of black people, but supported racial profiling of people of Arabic descent in order to catch potential terrorists. Now, at this point, racial profiling of Arab Americans and religious profiling of Muslims were being discussed, as McCain's stance indicates. But despite McCain speaking up on it, it was not a primary focus in the racial profiling debate. For the most part, when both supporters and opponents used the phrase racial profiling, they were referring mainly to refer to profiling of black and Latino people. At least one Republican primary candidate, Alan Keyes, however, defended racial profiling specifically against black people. Keyes, himself black, said that racial profiling was reasonable based on racial disparities in crime rates. When debate moderator Larry King asked Keyes if he would feel angry about getting racially profiled, Keyes replied that he would not be angry at the cop, just angry at black criminals. While bigots ate up Keyes' statement, there was a certain irony. White supremacists frequently derided any real or imagined suggestion that systemic racism somehow made black people not responsible for their actions, or that mistreatment of black people by many white people justified reverse racism. But in essence, Keyes was attempting to claim that racist cops were not responsible for their misdeeds, and that bad actions by a minority of black people justified worse treatment for all black people. Of course, Bush was nominated, and he and Gore often sounded relatively similar on racial profiling. So did their vice presidential nominees, Dick Cheney, who had voted against sanctions on South Africa's apartheid regime, and Joe Lieberman, who had marched with MLK and registered black voters in Mississippi. I want to play here a clip from Cheney during the vice presidential debate. Well, Bernie, I, um, uh, I'd like to answer your question to the best of my ability, but I, I don't think I can understand uh, fully what it would be like. Uh, try hard to put myself in that position and imagine what it would have been like, but of course uh, I've always uh, been part of the majority. I've never been part of a, of a minority group, but it has to be a horrible experience. Um, it's the, the sense of anger and frustration and rage that would go with knowing that um, the only reason you were stopped, the only reason you were arrested was because of your color of your skin, uh, would make me extraordinarily angry. And um, I'm not sure how uh, how I would respond. Uh, I think um, that we have to recognize that, that while we've made enormous progress in the U.S. in, in uh, racial relations and we have come a very long way, we still have a long way to go. This isn't usually how we remember Dick Cheney, and for good reason, but it shows where the national mood was on racial profiling. The bipartisan condemnation of racial profiling, however, belied a rift on the American right. Most of the GOP establishment, sincerely or otherwise, claimed to oppose cops and cab drivers 
racially profiling black people. Even Bush's first attorney general, a known Confederate sympathizer named John Ashcroft, at least paid lip service to opposing it. But many conservative political commentators openly favored it during the late 90s and early 2000s. National Review, a right-wing magazine that had opposed the civil rights movement, ran columns in the early 2000s by conservatives such as John Derbyshire, Rich Lowry, Jonah Goldberg, and even David Frum, supporting police racially profiling black people. I remember once considering Lowry an example of a non-racist conservative, and for that, I apologize. That was an astounding error of judgment on my part, especially given what I know of the American right. Rich Lowry is unfortunately a racist conservative. The Manhattan Institute, a conservative think tank, published a column by Heather McDonald arguing that police should use race as a factor in deciding whose cars to search, even though she said she opposed it as a factor in deciding who to pull over. George F. Will approvingly cited her in a column for the Washington Post, defending race as a factor in which cars to pull over and search. Both Will and McDonald basically criticized Bush for, in their mind, being too politically correct on the issue. Will's stance was particularly disappointing, since he had sometimes hinted at a libertarian streak, or has hinted at a libertarian streak, and taken some progressive stances on issues like the death penalty, the drug war, and firing racist, violent LAPD chief Daryl Gates. In perhaps the most ironic twist, the Weekly Standard magazine ran a column by William Tucker criticizing Giuliani for cracking down on racist cab drivers. Rather than arguing that innocent drivers were being falsely accused of racial discrimination, Tucker argued that this discrimination was a reasonable price for innocent black people to pay for other black people committing crimes. Tucker also recounted an incident in which cops mistook his African-American neighbor for a burglar that he had called to report about. And yet, Tucker still argued that police should racially profile black people, despite seeing up close, in a way that many white people have never been able to, the extent to which this practice is harmful, humiliating, and downright dangerous for innocent black people. Of course, Giuliani who Tucker criticized as being essentially not racist enough, would go on to become an openly racist, comically sycophantic Trumper. The Weekly Standard would go belly up on Christmas Eve 2018, largely because it was so anti-Trump. The lesson here? If you build a fan base of racists, you may have trouble staying in business if you attack the fascist man-baby god-king of racists. While Bush's victory in 2000 spelled potential trouble for liberal causes like affirmative action, it was not initially clear that his win would mean less federal action against racial profiling. In 2001, Representative John Conyers uh, of Michigan and Wisconsin Senator Russ Feingold issued the End Racial Profiling Act. Feingold is, in my opinion, probably the greatest former U.S. senator, with the best current senator being fellow Wisconsinite Tammy Baldwin. Baldwin, by the way, was in the House in 2001 and also signed on to co-sponsor the End Racial Profiling Act. I still get sad thinking about, about, sorry, about Feingold losing re-election in 2010. 
Conyers would end his career rather differently, being forced to resign in 2017 due to sexual misconduct. But on racial profiling, despite Conyers' personally despicable behavior, for which he very justifiably was forced to resign, despite that, on the issue of racial profiling specifically, both he and Feingold were leaders for civil rights. The denunciations of racial profiling by many leaders of both parties aside, it was clear which party was stronger on racial profiling even in 2001. In the Senate, all of the co-sponsors of the bill were Democrats, including both of New Jersey senators, John Corzine and Robert Torricelli. In the House, 86 Democrats plus Bernie Sanders co-sponsored it, while only eight largely moderate Republicans did. Of the Republicans who co-sponsored it, all represented districts north of the Mason-Dixon line, except for Connie Morella, a Maryland representative who had been born and raised in Massachusetts. Reflecting the widespread disgust for, ra for, the widespread disgust for racial profiling among New Jersey. Three of the Republican representatives who co-sponsored the bill represented New Jersey districts. Five Democratic reps from New Jersey co-sponsored it also. It is also worth noting that at least two of the Republican co-sponsors, Morella and Chris Shays, went on to vote for Biden. Amo Houghton, who did not co-sponsor this bill, but was one of the two main sponsors of the bill dealing with racial profiling at Customs, voted for Clinton in 2016, but died before getting to vote for Biden. The takeaway, looking at the Republican reps who co-sponsored legislation against racial profiling in this era, as well as the strong anti-racial profiling statements from Thomas Kane, is that despite Whitman's shameful record, the so-called Rockefeller Republicans, i.e. moderate Republicans, have generally been much more likely to take meaningful action and stances against racial profiling than so-called libertarian conservatives like Ron or Rand Paul, Mike Lee, and Thomas Massey have been. In August of 2001, Senate hearings were held on the act. Republican Senators Orrin Hatch and segregationist Strom Thurmond opposed the bill. Both of them argued that it was unnecessary and hinted that racial profiling might be acceptable if race was not the only factor used in determining who to follow, stop, question, or search. Senator Jeff Sessions seemed to be trying to thread the needle to undermine the bill without appearing racist. Sessions condemned racial profiling, sounding more like Bush and Cheney than Thurmond and Hatch at points, and actually defended Democrats against charges that the bill was intended to legalize drugs, but he also suggested that the bill might lead to more lawsuits and prevent non-racist cops from doing their job due to fear that they'd be falsely accused of racial profiling. The words drug and drugs appear 147 times in the record of Senate hearings on the bill, and the issue loomed large in the debate, with many people warning that the bill could derail the drug war. Two of the most prominent police organizations essentially testified in favor of racial profiling. The International Association of Chiefs of Police coyly stated that, quote, bias-based policing, end quote, 
should be defined as conduct by law enforcement officers motivated solely by an individual's race, gender, ethnicity, age, or socioeconomic level, but should not preclude consideration of race or ethnicity when it is part of a suspect's description or is otherwise validly related to an officer's investigation of criminal activity. End quote. This is what we call burying the lead. Obviously, using race as a factor when looking for someone matching the description of a specific suspect can be justified and should generally not be considered racial profiling. And none of the bill, uh, none of the bills co-sponsored, co- sorry, none of the bills co-sponsors argued otherwise. But the phrase, quote, otherwise validly related to an officer's investigation of criminal activity, end quote, would seem to greenlight racial profiling when police aren't looking for a specific suspect as long as race wasn't the sole reason for targeting them. Representing the Fraternal Order of Police, two-time head of the organization Steve Young griped that, quote, this means that absent an eyewitness or other description of a specific suspect's race or ethnicity, law enforcement officers can never use race as a factor, even if it would help them to identify a suspect, prevent a crime, or lead to an arrest, end quote. Yes, and the 13th Amendment means that people can never be forced to work against their will for someone unless they've been convicted of a crime. What will civil rights advocates think of next? Ray Kelly was brought in by supporters of the bill to testify. Senators Ted Kennedy, Hillary Clinton, and Dick Durbin, all co-sponsors of the legislation, and Chuck Schumer, a supporter of the legislation, all strongly praised Kelly for his stance against racial profiling in customs. Whatever one thinks of the later allegations against Ray Kelly relating to the NYPD, this praise is incredibly jarring in hindsight, given the reputation that he later garnered on the left. In his testimony, Kelly warned, quote, There is no greater danger to the credibility of law enforcement than racial profiling. Any agency that ignores this threat or delays in taking precautions against it risks not only its reputation, but the compact of trust between government and the rest of society, end quote. Unlike the many police leaders who tried to quibble about using race as one factor versus the only factor, Kelly asserted that, quote, inspectors can stop, search, and detain travelers based on reasonable suspicion, that is, specific factors that may lead these officers to believe that someone would be carrying drugs or other contraband. Under no circumstances do these factors ever include a person's race, end quote. Kelly stopped short of endorsing the proposed bill, expressing hope that racial profiling could be ended without it. But he finished by stating, quote, If federal and state agencies lag in the adoption of these policies, then legislation will be required. There is simply no place for racial profiling in American law enforcement, not in the Customs Service, or anywhere else, end quote. While the majority of Senate and House Democrats, and almost all Republicans, unwilling to call for ending the drug war, let alone legalizing drugs, there was a key elephant in the room. As stated earlier, the nature of the war on drugs, where police aren't generally looking for any specific suspects, lends itself to a lot more racial profiling. 
The establishments of both parties proclaim support for an all-out war on drugs, broad powers for police to, per- to perform searches, and an end to racial profiling. In practice, the first and second of these policies made the third policy harder to carry out. At least one person testifying in hearings about the act understood this, however. Laura Murphy, director of the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office, warned that, quote, Although many public officials now admit that racial profiling exists, few have the courage to publicly confront the larger context in which it occurs or the invidious role it plays in our national life. Politicians find it difficult to acknowledge that racial profiling is but the first step of an inexorable process justified by the so-called war on drugs that feeds a swollen prison population that is overwhelmingly black and brown, end quote. A month after these hearings, 9-11 took place. Two things became quickly apparent. All nine ter- sorry, all 19 terrorists involved had been Middle Eastern Muslims, and they had been motivated partly by their Islamic fundamentalism. The debate over racial profiling took a new turn. Racial and religious profiling of Arab and Muslim Americans had been going on since well before 9-11. When Timothy McVeigh, an Irish-American and lapsed Catholic, blew up a federal building in Oklahoma City and killed 168 people back in 1995, authorities had initially believed with little evidence that he was Muslim. But as mentioned earlier, profiling of Muslim and Arab Americans had never been the primary focus of the racial profiling debate, even when customs, which largely dealt with international travel, ended up in the eye of the storm in the profiling debate, the primary accusation was that they were discriminating against black and Latino travelers. Many Americans continue to oppose racial profiling of black and Latino people while drawing a distinction between that and the profiling of Middle Eastern and Muslim people, at least at airports. In a 2004 Gallup poll, 25% of Americans said they favored racial profiling to prevent thefts in stores, and 31% favored racial profiling on roads and highways, while 45% openly favored it in airports. The assumption was likely that the victims of racial profiling at the store and on the road would be mainly black and Latino, while the victims at airports would be primarily Arab-American. Shortly after 9-11, Stuart Taylor, among the conservative writers who had taken the hardest line against police racially profiling black people, argued that the issue of profiling Arab-Americans at airports was fundamentally different. While Taylor considered racial profiling of black people as part of a long pattern of governmental racism, he argued that paying special attention to airline passengers of Arabic descent was a national security necessity. He also argued that the potential consequences of allowing even a small number of airline hijackers to slip through the fingers of authorities was far greater than the potential consequence of letting some drug traffickers slip through the fingers of the authorities. To resolve this dilemma, Taylor proposed that George W. Bush ban federal agencies from racially profiling except at airports. Whatever Taylor's intentions, however, 
This wouldn't have resolved the issue of how to allow profiling of Arab Americans but not African Americans. As we've seen, there's been an ugly history of black people being profiled as possible drug traffickers at the airport. Completely exempting airports from a racial profiling ban would not limit the victims of racial profiling to Arab Americans. But some so-called liberals also tried to make a similar distinction. And I say so-called liberals because... Bill Maher, at this point, I, I don't really consider him a liberal. Um, you know, I was joking recently that um, if Bill Maher ever tried to uh, basically threaten that if the woke left tries to cancel me, I'll join the right, then leftists could respond, a threat doesn't really work if you've already carried it out. So in a 2002 interview with Larry King, Bill Maher defended the decision to throw an Arab-American Secret Service agent off an airplane on suspicion that he was a terrorist. Much as he'd done with Alan Keyes, King, post, uh, sorry, King pushed back on Marr's statements. King asked Marr, quote, So would you stop a black man driving a Porsche in Beverly Hills? End quote. Marr quickly responded, not a black, no, 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 not a black man. I'm talking with a terrorist situation, end quote. Still disappointed that Marr was in favor of any kind of racial profiling, King asked if he supported it, quote, only with the terrorist situation, end quote. And Marr replied in the affirmative. While Bush had supported Texas's anti-homosexuality law in the 1990s and had based his 2004 re-election campaign in large part on amending the Constitution to declare gay people second-class citizens, he engaged in largely the same defenses of Islam and Muslims after 9-11 that conservatives would later eviscerate Obama for, proclaiming that, quote, Islam is peace, end quote, and that Islamic terrorists were distorting the, fa distorting the faith. Bush's administration's official policy was to disallow airport security from paying special attention to Arabic or Muslim passengers. Norman Mineta, a liberal Democrat appointed to head the, head the Department of Transportation, firmly condemned racial and religious profiling at airports, comparing it to his childhood experiences as a victim of Japanese-American internment. Critics on the left questioned Bush's sincerity and argued that the administration was still engaging in racial, religious, and ethnic profiling in ages such as in areas such as immigration and surveillance. In 2002, congressional hearings were held on whether airports should racially and religiously profile Muslim and Arabic passengers, with some members hinting that it might be justified. The ACLU testified against it, and the strongest statement from a representative against it came from Bill Pascrell of New Jersey. Meanwhile, Feingold, Conyers, and other Democrats kept introducing the End Racial Profiling Act in every session of Congress, and in 2004, they were joined by a lone Republican Senator Arlen Specter. Apparently, the sponsors of the and co-sponsors of the bill wisely felt that it would be both unjust and impractical to carve out a special exemption in the bill for Arab or Muslim Americans. But after 9-11, the gears mostly ground to a halt. While a slew of both establishment and hard-left Democrats kept co-sponsoring the bill, Bush made no significant attempt to get it enacted after 2001, and it made no significant progress through Congress in the post-9-11 world. Still, 
some amount of progress on racial profiling did take place in other ways. For background, leading up to 9-11, New Jersey legislators had been holding hearings on how to end the practice in their state. In April of 2001, James Fife testified before the State Senate Judiciary Committee on how racial profiling could be cracked down on in New Jersey. He proposed a sting operation where undercover non-white cops would be put in used, unmarked vehicles, with state troopers who racially profiled them being busted and fired. Quote, If they make a few examples out of people who are misbehaving, that's going to go away real fast, end quote. That was Fife's prediction. Now, there were practical and safety concerns with this proposal. These concerns, in fact, are really reminiscent of the Aesop's fable, Belling the Cat. But Fife made other, significantly more feasible suggestions. So he advocated giving the state police commander greater ability to fire top supervisors and create an independent monitor to supervise the state police, since Whitman's former attorney general, Peter Venario, had been accused of intentionally allowing racial profiling, Fife urged that the state attorney general be an elected position similar to the case in New York. Fife's best recommendation was to ban, quote-unquote, consent searches, in which drivers, quote-unquote, volunteered to let cops search their vehicles. Fife warned that there was too much risk of cops intimidating drivers or deceiving drivers about how the law worked in order to get the drivers to agree to let the cops search their car. And Fife also warned that this practice was making racial profiling much easier. In 2003, New Jersey signed, uh, sorry, New Jersey passed a law against racial profiling signed by former senator-turned-governor John Corzine. Around this time, certain other liberal states, like Minnesota, California, and Rhode Island, and even some conservative states like Texas, Alabama, and Arkansas passed legislation to address racial profiling. One such bill, enacted in Illinois, was pushed heavily by a state senator named Barack Obama. Obama made racial profiling a campaign issue when he unsuccessfully challenged Bobby Rush in a primary for Congress in 2000. He continued to promote legislation to address this as a member of the state legislature, and he co-sponsored the End Racial Profiling Act after entering the U.S. Senate. In 2003, Bush issued guidelines against racial profiling. Due to the limits on presidential powers, the guidelines only applied to federal police, local and state police, in towns and states without racial profiling bans, were still potentially allowed to engage in racial profiling. Still, in many ways, the guidelines represented major progress. It was made clear that when federal cops were not looking for a specific suspect of known race, race could not be factored in at all in deciding who to stop, search, etc., regardless of any racial disparities in crime rates. This utterly rejected the, quote, solely on the basis of race, end quote, red herring, that Jeffrey Goldberg and Randall Kennedy had called out four years earlier. Perhaps most progressively, it forbade using race as a factor in pretextual stops. There were certain areas of concern in the policy, however. A DOJ, DOJ fact sheet explaining the new guidelines provided a series of scenarios 
and explained whether or not each of them constituted racial profiling. One scenario read, quote, The victim of an assault at a local university describes her assailant as a young man of a particular race with a cut on his hand. The investigation focuses on whether any students at the university fit the victim's description. Here, investigators are properly relying on a description given by the victim, part of which included the assailant's race. Although the ensuing investigation affects students of a particular race, that investigation is not undertaken with a discriminatory purpose. Thus, use of race as a factor in the investigation in this, in in this instance is permissible, end quote. On the surface, this sounds potentially reasonable. If police are looking for a suspect who matches a certain description, then people who don't match that description shouldn't be focused on. But as the... But the specific details of the scenario suggest that this was a reference to the Oneonta case that we discussed earlier, where scores of university students were subjected to searches with nothing to tie them to the crime besides being young black men. If If that was the case, then the DOJ guidelines would seem to subtly give approval to the actions of local police in that case. This was in stark contrast to Al Gore and Bill Bradley, who had both condemned the police's actions in Oneonta. The most serious cause for concern regarding Bush's handling of racial profiling came in 2005. The Bureau of Justice Statistics is a small, little-known branch of the DOJ responsible for reporting on things such as crime patterns, drug use, policing, and prison data, and has an office separate from the rest of the DOJ to try to make it less partisan. According to the Washington Post, in 2005, the Bureau was getting ready to announce the results of a study on possible racial profiling in traffic stops and searches. In 2002, the DOJ had surveyed 80,000 people about their experiences relating to getting pulled over. While the survey found that black, Latino, and white drivers were about equally likely to get pulled over, it also found that black and Latino drivers were far likelier to be frisked, have their cars searched, be subjected to use of force, etc. upon being pulled over. In other words, this study showed that while potentially there weren't racial disparities in who got pulled over, there were significant racial disparities in how cops, in many cases, acted toward drivers after they had already been pulled over. Obviously, the mere presence of a statistical disparity did not prove racial profiling, but racial profiling was one possible explanation, and the survey pointed to the need to conduct further studies on the pervasiveness of the problem. Lawrence Greenfeld, head of the Bureau of Justice Statistics, was ordered by Supervisor Tracy A. Henke to delete the references to the different treatment that non-white motorists received after being pulled over in a news release about the survey results. Greenfeld argued that a news release simply saying that black, Latino, and white drivers were stopped at about the same rate would be deceptive and inadequate. In the end, Greenfeld was demoted, and the full results of the study were made available on the DOJ website, but not in the probably more widely read news release. According to anonymous sources cited in the Post article, Greenfeld was summoned to the White House and pressured to resign from his position, suggesting that Bush himself may have been involved in the DOJ's actions. 
In June 2008, shortly before he left office, however, Bush allowed the DOJ to begin an investigation of Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was being accused of a slew of civil rights violations, including but not limited to racial profiling primarily of Latinos. In short, Bush finished his presidency with a complicated legacy on racial profiling. And that is where we're going to sort of end for today's episode. The next episode will start with the beginning of the Obama presidency and will sort of go, it will take us all the way to present day. So this is the second episode. The third and final episode will be released soon. Until next time, peace out.